0: This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we are here to help you find something great to read. It's Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about everything in print. Stewart in LA here with book seven in our Bond series, Goldfinger, written by Ian Fleming in 1958, published the next year, first under the title, The Richest Man in the World. And that kind of reminds you that Bond has spent a large part of the spy game fighting just that. People who use gambling, manipulate games of chance, commit criminal activities and smuggling all to amass large amounts of wealth. And that Bond will be meeting his wealthiest and most diabolical criminal de la criminal, as he's characterized, Oric Goldfinger, right here. He's such a threat that he may actually destabilize the entire country. England is having a currency crisis. Colonel Smithers at the Bank of England comes to M and Bond with the problem that he believes that Oric Goldfinger, a immigrant who came to England 20 years ago, is smuggling English gold out of the country and profiting from it. And gold smuggling is a really tricky business to get a handle on. Bond has already stopped smugglers before. With the diamond trade, diamonds are forever. But gold's even harder because A, it's a universal currency. Everywhere takes gold. And B, it's untraceable. You can try to put your stamp on it, but it can always be melted down and changed, and you wouldn't know where this gold comes from. And the world economies ran differently back in 1959 when this was published. Of a generation now where things have gone global, I didn't understand in Live and Let Die when Mr. Big was selling pirate gold that he found in the Bahamas to Harlem pawn shops, how that is a crime. But here it's really well articulated by Colonel Smithers. He explains that if you hold gold and are an English citizen, you are required to cash that in only at the exchange rate being offered by the Bank of England, meaning in some level gold is not your own. You can have it, but know that it's England, that you may have it as your property, but it's really the property of England, that how they set the standard for their currency. It is illegal for you to put that gold on a boat, send it to India, and sell it for a better exchange rate than what the Bank of England would pay. That makes you a good businessman, but it also makes you a criminal in the eyes of England in 1959. So, I get it now. I didn't understand in Live and Let Die, but I understand how this really threatens England. And they are the belief that gold is running out, that it's been mined everywhere, that in 50 years from 1959, there will be no more gold to mine. Guess he was wrong on that one, but... Regardless, Bond is hired to stop Oric Goldfinger to prove that he is committing this gold smuggling operation, much like he did in Diamonds Are Forever with the diamond trade and the spangled bomb. And, as it would happen, Bond already has a relationship with Oric Goldfinger. He actually has three significant encounters with him in this novel, and the novel is structured in that way. The first part is happenstance. The second part is coincidence, The third part is enemy action, and I'll explain what that means as we go through the story of the novel, but in Section 1, Part 1, Happenstance, Bond happens upon Goldfinger while being kept in Miami on a layover. He had actually just finished assassinating an opium dealer in Mexico and was coming back to England. His flight was canceled in Miami and he ran into Mr. DuPont, someone that remembers watching him play at Casino Royale against Le Chiffre and recognizing him as someone that really knows how to play cards and suspecting him of maybe even being a spy, thinks that he would be a great person to help him figure out how Goldfinger is cheating Mr. DuPont at Canasta. Mr. DuPont has been playing Goldfinger all week and has lost $25,000. makers would say that is impossible. Canasta has so much element of chance that you couldn't win as consistently as Goldfinger has. In the game, there must be cheating involved. And so Mr. DuPont is willing to pay... to keep Bond there an extra day and figure out how Goldfinger is ripping him off at cards. And he doesn't need to. This is a very wealthy man. It bothers Bond that he's a cheat. It's kind of the same setup as Moonraker. If you recall, Hugo Drax was, yes, launching a rocket that was going to blow up London, but was already busted in Bond's eyes for being a grotesque, who was cheating at Bridge. So he's game for it. Not so much for the $10,000, but just because, well, he's kind of in a lowly state here. He's a haunted man. The assassination he's coming off of has brought up a lot of feelings of self-loathing and existential crisis. And I think he's just looking for a way to make him feel better. He needs justice. And so he's going to get it. And it's not surprising that he finds Auric grotesque in his eyes. He's only five foot tall and described as having a ruthless looking face and obsessed with gold so he's trying to make himself gold. He's tanning all the time and he's wearing a yellow satin bikini which would probably be kind of gross on anyone and we understand that Bond for the first time is doing something not out of a sense of duty. He is not doing this for England. He is doing it for himself and he is doing it as a need for finding justice in a world he keeps finding to be cruel. And not surprising, there is an inside man helping Oric Goldfinger out as he plays cards with Mr. DuPont, or I should say an inside woman. Jill Masterston is up on a hotel balcony with binoculars and a headset and is feeding Goldfinger, through an earpiece, information about what cards Mr. DuPont is holding. Bond relishes taking her hostage. They go away on a train and he forces Goldfinger to admit his deception to his card-playing friend, and even gives Jill the $10,000 that he earned for doing this to get away from her boss, so that Goldfinger is without his girl, without his money, and exposed as a fraud. So this is the first section, Happenstance, and it really almost stands alone as a short story. Fleming flirted with the idea of making this the entire story before ultimately weaving it into this larger scale battle with the plot ending up being the attack on Fort Knox. So when he's assigned to take on the guy that's ripping off the Bank of England, he makes it look like a coincidence, the second chapter of the novel. It's not really a coincidence, but it's perceived that way. They happen to meet at the Gulf Range. And Goldfinger is fully aware that this is the guy who embarrassed him in Florida and took away Jill Masterton. He does not know that Bond is a spy at this point or that Bond is anything more than a rich playboy like himself who has happened to land here in England on the golf course. Normally these are the sections I always feel like Fleming excels at. I like the horse racing and Diamonds Are Forever. I like the bridge. I like the cards, games of chance, and we haven't had one of those for a while. It's nice to see that come back, but I can't say that I love this golf game. I love Goldfinger's Caddy. It is Oddjob, the henchman that is so beloved from the Sean Connery movie, and he kind of comes off in the same way that he does here. Short Korean in a boulder hat who is a living club. His muscles have muscles. He could break you in half with his pinky finger, and he's a silent but deadly threat throughout the 18 holes that they're playing. Bond is not a good golfer, or at least he's not good enough to beat this guy. He ends up winning the round because rules dictate that you must play with the same ball through the entire course, and he switches out Goldfinger's ball an act of deception so that he has to throw in the game. Even though he officially wins, he is disqualified. And so Bond takes him again for more money, and that just ups the stakes. The real point of this is that it gives him the opportunity to bug Goldfinger's car, his silver ghost, as it were. And now he can track his vehicle as it goes across country lines, and he can really learn about the smuggling operation. And as it were, it's hiding in plain sight that Goldfinger actually has his auto parts of the car made out of gold and that they're melted down at a factory once it gets out in Switzerland. And as Bond is tailing Silver Ghost to its destination, he is noticing that following behind is an attractive brunette who seems to want to assassinate Goldfinger as well for reasons that are unknown at first, Tilly Soames. She ends up being the sister of Jill Masterton, the woman that Bond had his dalliance with after he thwarted the Canasta game, cheats. Jill is dead. Now, in the movie, it was made readily apparent, and in the moment, Bond wakes up after being attacked by Ajab to find the corpse spray-painted gold. Here, it's more described as a fetish that Goldfinger has, that he likes to have women embody the metal he loves so much, and he has women painted gold, and as long as you don't paint the base of the spine, you will be fine, but that there is apparently a medical condition, much like asphyxiation, that if you paint the entire body and all the pores can't breathe, that your skin literally breathes for you, that what your mouth and nose do isn't enough, that closing the pores with all of this gold paint can kill, and he took the fetish that far, that he had Jill painted and killed. And now the sister wants revenge. Eventually, these two are captured outside of Oryx Factory, and this is the third meeting. Goldfinger explains, the first time I meet someone, it's happenstance. The second time I meet them, it's a coincidence. The third time, I can only presume that this is enemy action. And Bond, you must be an enemy to me. You must be trying to attack. So he sets about torturing him, trying to find out who he really is, who he really works for, what he knows. Up to this point, I would say that the novel and the movie that I've already reviewed over at NowPlayingPodcast.com have been pretty similar in story points, not in tone. I definitely feel like the movie is much more playful and campy, whereas here there is an existential angst to Bond and he's just much more serious. But as we get into this third enemy action section of the novel, I definitely feel it starts to really become something of its own, much less fun and light than what the movie does, although just as grand and absurd. Bond actually kind of gives up. I think he wants to die. He's just thinking about who's going to step in now. He's thinking maybe 008 will step in. And he imagines going to heaven and having to explain who Tilly is to Vesper Lind, the woman from Casino Royale that he thinks must be waiting for him. And these are what's on his mind as he passes into unconsciousness. He thinks he's going to heaven. Maybe he's going to hell. It's close. He ends up in America. And we all know how much Bond hates that. Goldfinger has had a change of heart. He sees Bond as any other metal that he would work for, and he's going to mold him into a tool that he can use for his biggest operation yet, his Grand Master Plan, Operation Grand Slam, as it's characterized. So both Bond and Tilly Soames have been spared and are now going to be employed as secretaries as he takes business meetings with mobsters. I know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There are just things in this story. The death by gold paint, the, okay, I'm going to torture you. No, I'm going to employ you as my helper. They don't make sense. They're not really well integrated into a spy story, but we have to go with it. So Bond and Tilly are in Idlewild, New York. They're taking notes at a meeting in which six criminal gangs have been brought in by Goldfinger to pull off his Fort Knox heist. Now, in the movie, they were there to radiate Fort Knox and ruin the American economy. Here, it is very much a bank robbery of the highest order. Fort Knox has 15,000 tons of gold bullion in it. And Goldfinger has worked out a plan in which they can all walk away with some mint. He's going to start by drugging the local water supply and he tells the mobsters that it will make people pass out for an extended amount of time. It's a June day. They're hot. Everyone is going to drink water. And then once word spreads that there is this contagion or something happening around Fort Knox, it will create a panic and that Goldfinger and all of these mobsters will swoop in posing as relief workers, Red Cross physicians, nurses, that they will show up Pretending to care for the people that have fallen, when in fact they are bringing in, by train, an atomic warhead. Yes, Goldfinger is so rich he's been able to buy a nuke, a clean nuke, one that he claims doesn't have much fallout. I don't know how that works. I don't care. That's how he's actually going to get through the door. He tells all the mobsters, it's on you how you get your share out, but I have the train line. So don't mess with the trains. I'm going to take my stash, by train, out to a port in Virginia where a ship is waiting for me, and so this is the plot. Bond, being the close confidant and secretary, knows two details that the other mobsters don't hear. And that is, one, what's being put in the water is not a sleeping agent, but a poison. It was used by Nazis. It will kill 60,000 people. Goldfinger laughs that, oh, that's how many people die on American roads every two years. What's the big deal? But this information is withheld because I don't think that American mobsters would be cool with that much mass killing. Even if they were, the charges that they would go up in, go up on if they were killed are much higher than this heist. They would be murderers on the order of Nazis. And two, the ship that is waiting for Goldfinger is Soviet. Smirsch is really funding Goldfinger. And they're letting him commit this act and become the richest man in the world because it will also mean attacking America and completely destabilizing Western economies. Bond knows all of these ins and outs. He and Tilly are the only ones. He puts a message in a bottle, essentially. He writes all of this down, says, I'll give whoever finds this $5,000 if you can get it to Felix Leiter at the Pinkertons, and leaves it in the airport hangar, hoping that a cleaning staff person or somebody that can read it will take it seriously and have the authorities on the outside find out and respond to the plan in time before Goldfinger commits Operation Grand Slam. Now here is where we spend a little bit of time with the six different heads of these gangs that are being used and I thought it was a fun callback. The book is filled with callbacks to Casino Royale and Moonraker and all these other adventures. We meet the new head of the Spangled Mob from Diamonds Are Forever. We thought Bond killed everyone that was involved with the diamond trade. Well, Jack Strap now runs it out of Vegas. I don't know if that's a play on jockstrap. There's a lot of innuendo here, but Bond doesn't seem to care too much about jackstrap or jockstraps. He does care about Miss Pussy Galore, who is the head of the lesbian criminal gang from Harlem, the Cement Mixers. Obviously, the second most famous character in Goldfinger is Miss Pussy Galore. She's characterized here. She looks different than Honor Blackman does. She's not a golden girl. She has untidy, urchin, dark hair, and she's just more haggard. I get the sense that she's a bruiser, a scrappy, attractive, but not glamorous woman. Bond is instantly smitten. He, quote, Felt the sexual challenge all beautiful lesbians have for men. He also notes that Tilly is smitten. That she, quote, is gazing at Miss Galore with worshipping eyes and lips that yearn. Bond decided that all was now clear to him about Tilly Masterton. Because, yeah, he had been trying to work this girl all this time. Over in Switzerland, outside the factory, he arranged a road collision so that they could meet, and he's been trying to whine and charm her. Well, it turns out the reason why she wouldn't give him any play is not because she's grief-stricken or has other things on her mind, like avenging her sister. It's because she's a lesbian and can't understand the universe of appeal of a man like Bond. And it does get even more absurd in its sexual politics from here. Tilly's obsession with pussy actually will cause her to lose her life, that as Operation Grand Slam goes into play, Bond tries to get away from Goldfinger, and Tilly doesn't listen, she thinks that Pussy will protect her, that Pussy is someone that can protect her and understand her better than Bond can. Well, that's when Oddjob throws his metal hat, takes her out. Everything goes according to plan otherwise for Goldfinger. He's at the doors. He's about to launch the nuke. He's laughing at Bond that he's the victor. But in fact, the note worked. Somehow, some way, that note went from the Idlewild Airport to Felix's Hands, who's mobilized the Marines, Fort Knox, the President of the United States. Everyone now knows what Goldfinger is doing and is playing possum. All the bodies that have collapsed that we think drank the water and are dead are actually men that are springing back up to life and taking on Goldfinger and the mobsters as they try to blow open the fort. This is where Tilly is killed in the crossfire and Bond has the oh-so-eloquent eulogy of, quote, poor little bitch, she didn't think much of men. It's her fault. She deserved it. And Oddjob and Goldfinger get away on the train. They go back and regroup with Smirsh. And they figure out together who Bond really is. That up to this point, Goldfinger decided he didn't care who Bond was in the past. He was going to mold him into an assistant that could help him, Rob Fort Knox. Once he learns that he's 007 and of value to Smirsch, he goes back and kidnaps Bond by plane flying him to Russia so that he can at least get some reward money and some vindication for not being able to pull off the job. I've got to say, all this Operation Grand Slam stuff is surprisingly anticlimactic. It's only a couple of pages. Pages! What is the climax of the movie, and where it really kicks into life with that great fight with Ajab and trying to turn off the bomb, all that stuff. It really is almost no big deal. How easily the plot falls, how quickly the mobsters are corralled, and the good guys win. And yeah, we get this little coda here on the plane that kind of plays like the movie. But I felt like, wow, in Goldfinger the movie, Connery didn't put up much of a fight until the end. But he did get to do some stuff here at the end. This bond... I was with him until the climax, and then I just felt like, wow, that was a little easy. This was supposed to be your richest, most powerful foe, and I don't know. I think Fleming is trying to take this all a little too seriously. I mean, I wouldn't want to say that he needs to write it like the campiness and the swinging sexcapade that is the 1963 movie, but... He definitely needs to go for it a little bit more than his reserved prose really wants to. That he still thinks that he's writing something about gold smuggling here. I think it's funny that he hasn't totally fully embraced the outlandish premise that he spun out of here. Beginning with a Canasta game and ending with the robbing of Fort Knox. Only in one way does this really start to resemble movie swinging 60s Bond, and that's right here at the close. After Oddjob is sucked out of the airplane when Bond breaks the window and the whole thing depressurizes and then he kills Goldfinger, there's a little bit of time between him and Pussy. And yes, just like he does in the movie, he is able to get her to switch teams. I'm just going to go ahead and read you the last page because it's just so good. Bond said firmly, lock that door, Pussy. Take off that sweater and come into bed, you'll catch cold." She did as she was told, like an obedient child. She said, not in a gangster's voice, or a lesbian's, but in a girl's voice, "'Will you write to me and sing sing?' They told me you only liked women." She said, "'I never met a man before.' The toughness came back into her voice. "'I come from the South. You know the definition of a virgin down there? Well it's a girl who can run faster than her brother.' In my case, I couldn't run as fast as my uncle. I was 12. And it goes a couple more paragraphs with pointy breaths and ruthless mouths and what have you. Almost a sex scene description. But yes, that is what Fleming is trying to say here. That lesbians are criminals who were raped as children and reject men and traditional sex roles because of it. Now, I know I should be offended. I know that this is just as obnoxious as the racial politics of live and let die. But Bond has won me over too. I have switched to his team too. But maybe not in the way that he would like to think. I really enjoy this character now because he is so stuck in the mud. Because he has these backward notions. Because Fleming has really constructed him almost as this impervious superhero who doesn't seem to understand the world has changed. You know, when you think about Bond coming into play after World War II and with England's ego so badly bruised, they needed somebody like this super spy to inspire them that, yes, maybe we can rebuild the British Empire again. This is the character that you would think would do that because any sense of variance, any ethnicity, any other person in the world, American, lesbian, black, what have you, he can beat with his sheer Britishness, his sense of propriety, his arrogance, He can lead the way again. I just think that this is cute. (laughs) I can understand why some people would think it's ridiculous. Some people would be offended. Some people think this goes too far. But to me, he is a self-parody of Britain's place in the global order of things in this time. We like Bond because he is cool, and we like Bond because he is so uncool and doesn't know it because he thinks he's cool. I like him for both reasons. So the fact that he's going to convert this lesbian here and change her, I'm going with it. And I'm going with Goldfinger. You know, I will say this. I feel like this is the first time where the book is not as much fun as the movie. Now, of course, I wasn't a big fan of Live and Let Die, but it had largely to do with the backward racial politics, I think as a spy adventure, it was probably pretty good or on par with the Roger Moore movie. But here it's without a doubt that Connery's film is more fun, that it just seems to understand the ridiculousness more and goes for it. Whereas here, I don't know, Goldfinger takes itself a little too seriously it doesn't totally work as these three separate sections. I almost feel like they are three entirely different spy adventures. That the Canasta game is its own thing, that the golf game is its own thing, and that this Operation Grand Slam is almost too absurd to work. It's also Fleming's longest work. I think it runs on a little long. I think that in many ways he's pulling details and plot points from earlier novels. That fatigue that I felt that he was dealing with after he flirted with Killing Bond, what do I do next? You can feel it creeping into the work now. He's not sure where to take the character next. But with all those misgivings aside, I'd still say this is a solid adventure. I enjoy it the same way I enjoyed Moonraker or Dr. No. It's right in the middle of the road. It's not one of the great Bond adventures, which I would characterize as Casino Royale or From Russia with Love. But I think if you're really hooked into this characterization, you'll go with it. Even though you may recognize, and I recognize, and I think Fleming recognizes, he needed to shake it up. So let's do that. Let's shake it up. I have been on 007 duty for 007 novels. I'm going to step aside here. When we return next week at Books and Nachos for the next James Bond Adventures, it's going to be a different style of story with a different host. Brock, my co-host over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, wants to get in here and talk about his Bond love. He's going to pick up with the short story adventures of James Bond. The next published collection of Bond Adventures is For Your Eyes Only, Brock is jumping in there, and he's going to be covering the first two published stories, Quantum of Solace and The Hildebrand Rarity. And from there, Brock will just keep going. The remainder of the short stories, Thunderball, all the novels afterwards. From this point forward, Brock is taking the mantle and running with it with Bond. I just want to say I have had a blast exploring literary bond with you guys. Thanks for staying with the show and showing support and interest. I feel kind of like Connery and Moore did though. I've done my seven entries. I'm ready to let the next guy do it and show some renewed enthusiasm. I am going to keep reading. I hope you do too. Join us next week right here at Books and Nachos, Quantum of Solace, The Hildebrand Rarity, James Bond. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.